0: Welcome back, Crimeaholics. It's your host, Holly. Before we begin today's episode, I do want to give it a little bit of a trigger warning because this case pertains to a child's death, and I know a lot of people prefer not to hear the details about a death of a child. However, when I pulled our Facebook group, the majority of you said that their stories are just as important to tell and just as important to hear. And I agree. Here at Crimeaholics, we don't go too far into depth about the graphic details of any murder that we cover, which a lot of you have said that you appreciate. This case will be nothing different, so if you're one who is on the fence about listening to cases pertaining to children, I can assure you that there won't be too many graphic details. But please, feel free to skip over this episode. We completely understand, and we won't hold it against you. In 1991, Amanda Lynn Lemaire, who went by Mandy, was an 11-year-old girl who lived in Taslina, Alaska with her parents and two little brothers. Taslina, Alaska is a small town that is just over three hours northeast of Anchorage. Now when I say small town, I mean really small. In 2010, the population of Taslina was 297, which was quite the increase because it was only 149 people in 2000. So I can imagine it being even smaller than that in 1991. August 22nd, 1991, the kids of Taslina could be seen. Outside, playing, soaking up as much of the sunshine as they could, enjoying that near 24 hours of sunlight. Winter, however, was on the horizon, which means cold, dark, long days in Alaska. School was also set to begin in just a few weeks, and Mandy was going to be in the sixth grade that year. Mandy was an adorable young girl beginning to grow into her big adult teeth with a large smile and long blonde hair. She was 5 foot tall and weighed around 105 pounds. She was always one to be funny and enjoyed making people laugh. She also loved to play pranks on people like her good friends and her family. She loved to do girly things like crimp her hair, dress up, and she wore big bows in her hair. But she wasn't afraid to get dirty. Living in Alaska, she learned to hunt and fish, and she was not shy or scared about getting dirty with her younger brothers and her dad. Her dad described her in a Forensic Files episode as someone who was a tomboy but could switch it off and be comfortable in a party setting, dressed up girly. In Alaska, there's a lot of wilderness, and the surrounding area of Taslena was no different. The homes in the town had spacious lots with trees dividing one house from the next. With the houses being so spread apart, it was not uncommon for kids to walk to their friend's house or ride their bikes and it would be about a mile or two to get there. Mandy and her best friend April headed out to walk to their friend's house to play. The pair were walking down the road when April accidentally tripped and skinned her knee pretty bad. April decided she wanted to walk back to the store that they had passed not long before and she headed back in that direction. Mandy was going to wait for April on the road while April went to the store owners for a band-aid and to see if they could help her clean herself up. But when April returned, Mandy wasn't there. Which April didn't think anything of this. She just assumed that Mandy got sick of waiting for her. It took her a little bit. So she went ahead and headed... To the friend's house that they were going to so april headed that way and when she got there mandy wasn't there either nor had any of the kids seen her again she figured that mandy was hiding in the bushes waiting for the opportunity to jump out and scare them all but after two hours had gone by and no mandy her father david lemare called the police it didn't take long for friends and families and neighbors to band together and began the processes of searching for Mandy. This is a small town, you guys, and I'm sure they just assumed that Mandy had stumbled into the woods or gotten caught off track and lost her way and that she would be home or be found in no time. They began making flyers and handing them out, though, to the locals and anyone passing through. One day after another, searchers looked for Mandy, each day slowly passing by, and each day closing with no signs of her. Her family began to fear the worst, and a lot of people speculated that Mandy had stumbled across a mama bear and her cubs, and the bear had attacked her, or that there was some other animal attack. According to the Forensics Files episode, an Alaska state trooper named James McCann drove down from Fairbanks, Alaska with search dogs but the dogs also were unable to track Mandy. On the 10th day of searching, searchers were out scouring more of the Alaskan wilderness when they found her body. It was apparent that Mandy had been shot to death. Mandy Lemaire was found just a mile away from her home, near a road that led to the river. The investigation began immediately, but investigators were up against some hurdles from the start. It had been raining for several days after Mandy had disappeared, and as we know, the rain can wash away crucial evidence, such as possible footprints, tire tracks, or anything else that may have been left behind by Mandy's killer. It was apparent to investigators, though, that little Mandy had been alive when she was left out there in the muddy, wooded area of Taslina. There were some markings in the mud that was around Mandy's body to indicate that she struggled while trying to get out of the wash where she had been left for dead. Not only that, but she also had dirt and mud caked underneath her fingernails, also indicating her struggling to get up. After her autopsy was complete, it revealed that she had been shot twice at a close range with a twenty two caliber rifle. There was also signs of sexual assault. Now that police weren't looking at finding a lost child, they switched gears and began hunting down potential suspects in Mandy's murder. According to the Forensic Files episode, a police informant came forward and pointed the finger at a construction worker named David DeFaris. He claimed that David was practically obsessing over this case with Mandy and talked non-stop about it at work, which we know from watching all of our crime shows and listening to podcasts that that's kind of sometimes a red flag. David DeForest wasn't one with a clean record either. 20 years before Mandy's death, he was convicted of a car theft, but not only that, David also more recently had a run-in with the law enforcement and was actually named a suspect in a death of someone in another state. David was brought in for questioning where he denied absolutely 100% that he had not been involved in the death of Mandy and that he had an alibi. When Mandy had been kidnapped and murdered, David claimed that he was at work that whole entire time and his alibi checked out. Authorities confirmed with David's employer that he truly was at work when Mandy disappeared, so he was marked off the suspect list. But before authorities were finished with David, he had something he wanted to tell them. David claimed that he was traveling down the road where Mandy was last seen when he passed another local man out there as well. Charlie Smithart was known and loved by many people in the community. The kids all loved him because if they ever had issues with their bikes, they would take it over to his shop and he would fix their bikes and then send them on their way with a handful of candy. Forensic Files describes Charlie as a 61-year-old retired steel worker who had been divorced twice and living in a makeshift workshop behind his mother's home. When Charlie was named a potential suspect, the police began thinking back about who all helped search for Mandy. And can you guess who was there? Charlie Smithart. Which, as most of us know, this is not uncommon. Many killers go back to the scene of the crime. Many killers help search for the victims. And many killers go to the vigils and things held for the families. And Charlie Smithart was no exception. When police looked back on the logs of those who had volunteered to search for Mandy, Charlie never once logged in, but they know for a fact that he was there. When Charlie got brought in for questioning, he absolutely denied being a part of Mandy's murder, and that's no surprise there to me, as I'm sure it's not there for you either. He did, however, say he had an alibi. Charlie Smithart claimed that David DeForest must have been lying about seeing him out there because he was at home with his mother watching television. Which his mother backed up and confirmed that Charlie was there and that the two of them enjoyed the afternoon and early evening watching shows together. But when two people claim that they were at home and nobody else apparently saw them there, it's hard to 100% know for a fact. So police began searching deeper and trying to check around places that Charlie's mother was known to go. And that is when investigators got their first big break in the case. Charlie's mother had gone shopping at the Copper River grocery store on the day of Mandy's disappearance and paid for her items with a check. The time and date for both the register tape and the check were both marked for August 22nd 1991 at 3:17 p.m. she had claimed that she was home during this time watching tv with charlie but clearly she was actually at the copper river grocery store this revelation completely demolished any possible alibi that charlie was trying to claim that he had while investigators were vigorously working on building a case against Charlie, criminalist in Anchorage were trying to gather any potential evidence that was left behind on Mandy's body that had not been washed away from the rain. It was then that investigators got their first real clue. Criminalist in Anchorage were working to find anything left behind on Mandy's body or clothing when something caught their eye. Something appeared to be almost sparkling on Mandy's clothing. When the pieces were examined under a microscope, they appeared to be little fine pieces of metal. They also found several red and blue fibers, as well as one single yellow paint chip. Investigators were granted a search warrant, and they took possession of Charlie's pickup truck. Inside, they were able to lift microscopic particles from the seats and the floorboards of his vehicle. During one of the several interrogations that they had with Charlie, investigators, while sitting there with him, noticed something sparkling on his shirt. When asked what they were, he shrugged it off, saying it was probably brass or aluminum because he's always working on grinding and cutting various different metals. This led investigators to wanting to search his workshop, and from there, they collected anything that they could, such as hairs, fibers, any shards of metal that they found, paint samples, and they even took some of his clothing. The evidence was shipped off for forensic testing, and it was there that one of the forensic scientists matched the paint chip found on Mandy's body to one of the samples taken from Charlie's workshop. They were, without a doubt, the same material and composition makeup as each other. The scientist also compared the fibers that came off of Mandy's clothing to those found in Charlie's truck. Again, they were a perfect match. Lastly, the little metal pieces found were examined, and the forensic scientist determined that these little shards of metal were steel. These pieces of metal were formed from an electrical cutting tool used to cut steel. And though these metal shards could be formed literally anywhere by anybody working on cutting steel, it is highly unlikely that this is a coincidence, a random coincidence, that Mandy happened to have them on her body and that Charlie was the prime suspect. According to the Forensic Files, investigators wanted to dive deeper into who Charlie Smithart was before arresting him. They flew to California to meet Charlie's daughter. There they talked with her in depth about her life and after a few hours with investigators, his daughter looked them in the eyes with tears in her own and admitted that her father began molesting her at the age of 11, which is exactly the age that Mandy was when he raped and killed her. She also told investigators that all of her sisters had also been victims of Charlie's as well. Just three months after the investigation into Mandy's death began, Charlie Smithart was arrested and charged with kidnapping, sexual assault, and the murder of Mandy Lamare. Two years after Mandy was murdered, Charlie Smithart's trial began in 1993. Charlie, during his trial, became outraged many times yelling and cussing about the fact that he was innocent. But Charlie was found guilty on all three charges of kidnapping, sexual assault, and murder, and he was sentenced to 114 years in prison. Mandy's family finally breathed a sigh of relief, knowing that justice had been served for their daughter and for their sister. And they began the processes of healing and living life without Mandy. They thought, for the most part, that their nightmare was over. But six years later, the Alaska Supreme Court overturned the verdict in Charlie's case and demanded that a retrial would happen because evidence the defense wanted to introduce into the trial had been denied and they felt that it was wrongfully done. The Anchorage Daily News reported that Charlie was never released from prison while awaiting retrial, but unfortunately he died of lung cancer before the new trial could be held which unfortunately also means that his charges were automatically dismissed. Which, if you've never heard of this happening, it happened in the Aaron Hernandez case where his charges were dropped when he was going through the appeal process and he committed suicide. Essentially, the charges, the record, everything of it essentially gets wiped clean like it never happened, which is extremely frustrating for families and almost feels like a slap in the face. Mandy's father's grief really took over him, and he struggled a lot with the death of his only daughter. His marriage to Mandy's mother disintegrated, as we often see in these cases, and after 13 years of marriage, they called it quits. After living years in grief, David finally turned his grief into a new passion. Anchorage Daily News reported in 2016 that David began a ministry for men called Copper River Float Ministry based out of Glen Allen, Alaska in 2000. He had also remarried in 1997. He does everything that he can to turn his grief into something positive and become a light in other people's lives. If you are not already a part of our Facebook group, make sure you search us on Facebook at Crimeaholics Podcast Discussion Group because I will have all information pertaining to this case in our group as well as pictures of Mandy herself. You can also follow us on Instagram at Crimeaholics.podcast and be sure to hit subscribe on whatever podcast platform that you like to listen on so you're notified every single time we go live with a new episode. Crimeholics, that's all I have on this case about Mandy LaMere. Until next time, be aware and take care.